Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santosh Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Today, I'll be joined by Dr. Tara Berman, who's a medical oncologist on the Breast Gynecologic Malignancies team in the Office of Oncologic Diseases at Center of Drug Evaluation and Research in the FDA, where she also serves as the Integrative Oncology Liaison for the division. She was recruited to the FDA straight out of her oncology fellowship at the National Cancer Institute at the NIH. She also received her MD from Sackler School of Medicine in Tel Aviv, and she received a Master of Science in Nutrition at Columbia University. Dr. Berman's clinical focus is in treating gynecologic malignancies, translational research on HPV and viral oncology, as well as integrative oncology and botanical medicine. Today, we'll be discussing how the FDA approaches regulation and development of botanicals and supplements, a topic that's very important to all of us who are interested in integrative oncology. Hi, I'm uh, I'm pleased to be joined with Tara Berman, and we're going to be talking today about how the FDA regulates botanicals um, in in the form of supplements, which is a, a really, really important topic. So thanks so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Santos. Thanks for having me. Well, let's let's get let's get to it. Um, I think that this is uh, an area that's that's of a lot of interest to a lot of people, and uh, probably uh, many folks don't really have clarity on how the FDA operates, especially in this particular um, in this particular realm. So, can you just first of all tell us how the FDA came to be and 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 some of the landmark regulations that really guide how we regulate um, drugs and then natural supplements as well. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I just recently started working at the FDA in October of 2018. And while I was here, I learned all about the FDA's history and why it's so important that we have an institution like the FDA in place. Um, Historically, the FDA developed in a kind of reactive way. There were a series of um, historical disasters that developed where the FDA had to come in and establish regulation for public safety. Um, Prior to the 1900s and the late 1800s, there really wasn't a lot of regulation of drugs. In the marketplace, there were a lot of useless remedies, and there were some remedies that were downright harmful. I mean, you can look back and just Google image old uh, advertisements in the late 1800s, and you can see there were cocaine toothache drops for, for kids and heroin hydrochloride cough syrup, and people were selling tapeworms to banish a fat and uh, as a weight loss supplement. Um, there weren't a lot of laws, regulations, or standards for patent medicine as we know it today. Um, That's crazy. In 1902, uh, 
Dr. Wiley of the uh, USDA Bureau of Chemistry got together a group of a dozen young men, which the, the press dubbed the Poison Squad, to eat chemically treated foods, and he documented their side effects. And this was before you know clinical trials existed as we know them. So this was kind of how we figured out the side effects of, of food, uh, of chemicals of food and, and what happens when food's contaminated, um, which is outrageous today. But back in the day, this was, you know, a controlled experiment where people volunteered. And then around this time, Upton Sinclair published his book, The Jungle in 1905, which was an expose on the harsh realities of the unsanitary and inhumane conditions of the meatpacking industry. And I think as a result of these and, and a couple of other things, the uh, the FDA was created and the uh, in 1906, the U.S. Pure Food and Drug Act was passed, also known as the Wiley Act, um, which regulated ingredient labeling and existed to respond to problems. So there wasn't a lot of proactive legislation at this point, but this was kind of the first establishment of, of the FDA as we know it today. Um, after that, in 1937, there was a big disaster called the elixir sulfonilamide disaster where 100 people, many of them children, died from taking this raspberry-flavored cough syrup, which was um, diluted with a poisonous solvent called diethylene glycol. And this kind of was the, the moment where the FDA, this was really incited the um, the action where um, the government had to come and get involved in the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was passed in 1938, the FDCA, where all drugs had to be tested for safety. Um, this is where the NDAs come in for new drug applications. And this is where we started regulating uh, false therapeutic claims. However, at this time, there were still no standards. So there were no carcinogenicity studies, which is important to me as an oncologist. Um, there were no expected exposures, randomized controlled trials, or post-marketing surveillance. And kind of as a consequence of this, um, you know, we started this age of safety, but, but not really efficacy yet. And then in the 1950s in Europe, there was another crisis, the thalidomide crisis, where infants started to become born with flipper limbs or what's called focomelia in, in Europe and Canada. And this was traced back to a drug called thalidomide that was being given to mothers for morning sickness and pregnancy. And the sponsors of this company applied for US marketing saying, oh, this is a completely safe sedative. And Dr. Francis O'Kelsey, who is the chief medical officer at the FDA, who does the job very similar to what I do as a, a medical officer, didn't see enough safety data for this drug and didn't feel like it was okay to be released in the U.S. for marketing. And she prevented a major disaster from happening in the States. And she was actually awarded uh, John F. Kennedy's President's Award for Distinguished Federal Service by preventing the distribution of this harmful drug. Um, and as a result of the thalidomide crisis in 1962, the Keefe uh, Harris Amendment was passed. And this established three important changes where the FDA, one, had to give positive approval before a drug could be marketed. And this established um, the requirement to study drugs under an IND, an investigational new drug application. And drugs had to be safe and also effective. And then that brings us to today. So, you know, now the FDA imp imposes regulations in a more 
um, proactive way where now we're starting to understand drug metabolism, drug-drug interactions. We're including demographic subsets. So we're looking at both genders and studies, racial diversity, including all ages, so pediatrics to the elderly. Um, in 1998, we established that the NDA applicants must analyze safety and effectiveness data by age, gender, and race. And today, the U.S. drug review process is the gold standard around the world. So we're really in an age now of individualization and dose response. So this is kind of the development of how FDA started and, and where we are now, where we're at now. I, I think it's fascinating how it's evolved, and you know, clearly the FDA uh, and its regulations are needed. Um, as a critical safety net um, in this country and, and obviously gives uh, information that's that's used by people around the world to some extent. And I think a lot of this comes down to, to trust, um, trust that what you were, uh, you know, using if you're a patient or what you're prescribing, um, if you're a healthcare provider has what you think it's supposed to have and has the efficacy that you that you want um, and has been tested and, and basically it's a stamp of approval, so to speak. So, you know, that makes a lot of sense when we talk about medicines and drugs. Where do botanicals fit in here? So there's there's many different types of botanicals. Botanicals can be one of four categories. They can be food, supplements, drugs, or even cosmetics. So I think the ones most relevant to oncology are, are botanicals as supplements and botanicals as drugs. So when we're talking about botanicals as drugs, the, the review the review process is really no different from any other single molecule um, drug that's being submitted to the FDA for review. We I work in the in Cedar, which is the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, and we evaluate all drugs the same. So it's just botanical drugs are regulated like any other drug. And it's a very complicated process and complex process. And to date, there's only two botanicals that are um, that have NDAs for, for botanical drugs. And those are um, Ferrogen and Crofelomer. And I can talk about those in a little bit. The other category is supplements. And supplements are regulated in a completely different way. Um, and this is because of the of DSHEA Act, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act that was passed in 1994 by Bill Clinton, which really put supplements under a food umbrella category and not drugs. So at the FDA, a different department regulates botanicals as supplements, and that's called CIFSAN, the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. So there are two completely different pathways, and there's a lot less regulation um, under supplements uh, because they're regulated more as food, so not as drugs. It's interesting. I mean, so the 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 supplements or the botanicals that are regulated as drugs, they basically advertise themselves as having a drug-like uh, effect, basically. Whereas the um, natural products that are that are not regulated as drugs but are just regulated as supplements, they're basically advertising themselves as as food and and not having a serious medical impact. Is that right? Right. Well, they to, to be regulated as a supplement, that you really have to look at the indication, and the indication is what really classifies a botanical in any of the four categories. So whether it's a food, cosmetic, supplement, or drug, um, you look at the indication, and that's established by the labeling. So it's established also by advertising and distribution circumstances. So for example, if the intended use of a botanical product is to affect the structure or function of the body, Let's say you have a deficiency of a certain vitamin and that vitamin is performing that need to, that 
uh, requirement that, that you need that dietary requirement for that particular dietary supplement, that that's affecting the structure or function of the body. And that allows the classification as a supplement. Uh, in distinction, if you're making a claim with your supplement to diagnose, cure, mitigate, tr or treat disease, then that product is looked at as a drug. And when I say disease, I'm talking about also symptoms of diseases because there's a, like a gray area where people get confused and say, well, you know, I want my supplement to treat headaches. Is, is headache really a disease? And then, you know, it really becomes a gray area. But if you're diagnosing, curing, mitigating, or treating disease or symptoms of disease, it's, it's generally looked at as a drug. That's so interesting. So like, what if somebody takes something like black cohosh for hot flashes? Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's what's out there in the marketplace. You see these, uh, you know, natural products and they're advertising it for symptoms, right? Um, right. So you're, you're saying that that's probably not the way they should be advertising it unless, you know, it's been studied, obviously, and regulated by the FDA. Is that right? Well, when you, if you go to any pharmacy and you look the labeling, there's usually, there has to be an asterisk. And then when you turn the product over and you look at the back of the label, it, it's going to say asterisk, these products have not been regulated. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, despite any, you know, promotional labeling or wording on the, on the front of the label, which might suggest um, that it performs these functions. They can, they can kind of dance around that by saying, you know, this product helps support or may prevent where you're not really saying take this to treat your hot flashes, but here's a supplement and it could do these things. And also the FDA hasn't evaluated anything we're saying, but <laughs> this is, you know, this is, could be a use of this, but it's not, it's not proven. Okay. Um, how, where does aromatherapy fit in? So aromatherapy is, uh, if it's used as a botanical, that it's it's regulated. You know, if it's used as a, as a supplement, or it depends. It depends what the intended use is. If you're using aromatherapy to cure cancer, that's going to be a drug. Um, if you want to use it as a supplement, but then for an indication to treat something, then it would also be evaluated as a drug. But if you're just selling aromatherapy over the counter, then that's regulated in, in a different way. Okay. So it really depends on no matter what you're selling, what the intended use is. So, you know, I, I think as, as, a, as a practitioner, I, I see a certain separation here. One is what it's being marketed and sold as, you know, and that's not necessarily, at least in my mind, the same as what, you know, uh, different patients are using things for whether it's marketed that way or expressly labeled that way. And similarly, providers, you know, because many providers, whether it's nutrition or natural products, they may advocate for something. But that's this is specifically looking at how, you know, um, products are being sold to consumers. Is that is that correct? Basically, if you are anything that any compound, any traditional uh, Chinese medicine or Ayurveda compound, aromatherapy, if any of those have an indication um, attached to it 
for a treatment of something to cure, mitigate, prevent disease in any way, then those come to, to FDA under INDs and, and that's how we evaluate them. We don't really make statements about, you know, everything. <laughs> you know, if we have different stipulations for different indications and different uses of these products. So that's really how we classify them and how they're regulated from, from our standpoint. All right. Thank you. I, I know we're, we're going to get more into um, all these different areas because uh, it's really interesting. But can you help us understand how many cancer patients are using botanicals right now? So there's, there's a couple of studies out there in the field of uh, integrative oncology. So one study in particular found that one in seven patients with cancer will use herbs after being diagnosed with cancer. Um, another study showed that within one year after diagnosis, 32% of patients with prostate cancer started taking new dietary supplements. There's been a correlation between greater herb use in patients with cancer and patients with other chronic conditions on top of that. So 49% of patients in the study were using um, herbs with cancer. And then if they had um, other chronic, sorry, if they had chronic conditions on top of cancer, there was 8% greater use of herbs in this patient population. And the, and the critical thing is here that another study found that 55% of patients with cancer did not report use to their doctors um, for fear of being ridiculed or because the doctor you know, quote unquote, never asked them about their supplement use. So I think the bottom line here is that patients with cancer are turning to integrative oncology and, and integrative medicine to self-treat and, and in conjunction with their treatment to, to add on these, these therapies. And, you know, they're not necessarily disclosing this information to their practitioners. And, you know, this is an area for concern because these supplements, you know, they're not inert. And just as much as they could potentially be helping patients, they could also be harming patients. There's some studies that show patients who take, or even people just healthy, the healthy population who take supplements in a preventative way could be at a higher risk for cancer down the line. The ATBC trial looked at a population with high risk for lung cancer, very high smokers and followed them prospectively. And those high, those, um, Smokers who used vitamin um, E and beta carotene actually had a higher risk of developing lung cancer than those who didn't take those supplements. And patients, there was a select trial that showed that vitamin E used in a preventative setting in, in a healthy population of men to prevent prostate cancer actually had a higher risk of developing prostate cancer than those uh, men who weren't taking vitamin E. So this is a controversial area. And then there's also um, a concern with drug-drug interactions with um, supplements like St. John's wort in the multiple myeloma pop patient population. This can interact with a drug known as, uh, uh, sorry, this is in the CML population where St. John's wort can decrease levels of an important uh, chemotherapy drug, an important immunotherapy drug called um, imatinib and um, green tea polyphenol, something in, you know, seemingly benign is pardon the, the phrase, but um, as, as green tea has, um, green tea has polyphenols, which can block the anti-cancer effect of important drug in multiple myeloma called bortezomib. So, um, you know, we really need to be as practitioners aware of what our patients are taking and aware of possible drug-drug interactions and, and these studies in a preventative setting that they don't always, vitamins don't always prevent cancer. And there could be, you know, evidence that they can increase risk as well. Right. So, so it's, it's a little scary. 
I agree. I mean, knowledge is a good thing. I I'll, I just wanted to clarify one one thing is that I I actually think um, that's one of the central roles for us in integrative medicine and integrative oncology is to work with patients and navigate uh, and help them with these questions. I think that's about half of the consults I get. So I, I think the problem is not that patients are using integrative medicine or integrative oncology or seeing practitioners. It's more that they're doing things without guidance. And like you said, they're Absolutely. not talking to their doctors and they're kind of self-treating. And um, and you lay out a lot of different <clears throat> areas where that's, that's potentially a, a problem. I think that, um, you know, it's kind of a question slash comment. I think one of the areas that we really need to work on is being precise with our advice. And uh, that's going to take a lot more research. But, you know, you mentioned a lot of very specific areas where um, taking vitamin E, for example, may not be a good idea. Um, smokers, for example, and prevention of lung cancer. But there's just so many different scenarios and a lot of times we don't really know what to say because there's no research and then you talk about it's not just the supplement it's what's the dose of the supplement you know what are the patient characteristics all these kind of things um i think play a role in terms of what our what our guidance is um you know for example antioxidants i think that um you know you laid out a, a specific scenario where a lot of antioxidants have not been shown to prevent um, cancer the way that we thought, or in some cases, there's uh, there's indications that if you have cancer, I know that there's um, some concern that maybe uh, antioxidants may not may be a bad thing even. But there are other um, natural products that have very strong antioxidant properties, and as a practitioner, not even I, you know, even as a researcher, it's. It's hard to know what the uh, you know real uh, principal action is that's causing an effect. You know, is it the antioxidant or is it something else? You know, one of the examples I would throw out there is melatonin. You know, so melatonin mm -hmm. is uh, a natural product that many people use to help them sleep, and melatonin has a lot of uh, interesting properties, um, including other than just helping you sleep. There's also a very strong antioxidant effect. And um, we, 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 we use it, you know, I mean, we use it for people who need to sleep, for example. And on this podcast, I've had different practitioners, um, some very respected, who talk about melatonin. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are when there's something like that where we, we don't really know, okay, we don't have all the safety information, although most studies suggest that you know, it's safe, um, you know, but in terms of every drug herb interaction, those kind of things, I think you could, you could look at it from two sides, but that's, that's something I, you know, I would consider, but it happens to be a very strong antioxidant. So how do we take an understanding of a natural product and understanding that it may have some antioxidant properties, for example, and really evaluate when to use that in practice, when it's safe and, and when it's unsafe? Absolutely. And I think I'm, I'm answering this more as, as just a, an integrative oncologist and, and not really from my, and not at all actually from my, from my position here at the FDA. So 
you know, personally, my my experience was um, I was trained at the NIH, the National Institute of Health at the National Cancer Institute for uh, my oncology fellowship. And because our patients were on clinical trials with investigative drugs, it was almost easy for us to make recommendations because we had to just tell all patients that they weren't allowed to continue on any supplements or, you know, any integrative medicine interventions because we're looking at drugs that we don't know that we are, you know, we're collecting data on these drugs and they're out there because they're on a clinical trial. We really can't have anything confounding their results. Let's say they're taking, you know, tomato paste or, or melatonin for antioxidant use. And now they're, they're being cured of their cancer, for example, you know, just as a hypothetical, like, do we know that it's really the drug that's curing them? Or is it an intervention that they're doing on the side? So, so we really had it easy as far as recommendations there. So I almost got used to telling patients, you know, we know the response rate of the expected response rate of these, of these, you know, cancer drugs, whether it's radiation as an intervention or, or chemotherapy, immunotherapy. And, I was actually I was listening to Dr. Lodog's um, podcast with you, and she touched upon this issue as well. The narrow therapeutic index. Um, you know, we ha- we have chemotherapy, which has to be at a certain level to be effective. If it's too high, it's toxic. If it's too low, it's ineffective. And we really want to wouldn't want any drug drug interactions to, you know, interfere with that narrow therapeutic index. Um, so I think it's, I think it's risky. However, you know, if you're, if these patients are really deriving benefit from this in a controlled setting, um, one of the things that I might recommend is that as a practitioner or for other practitioners, um, to evaluate these patients in a controlled settings and, and do an observational study. If this is something the patients consent to taking this with an unknown risk and that there's a risk that this could, you know, worsen their cancer, you know, in an informed consent. And then, you know, talk to the FDA about this, maybe embark on observational studies in your clinic saying, you know, my patients really want to take melatonin or these these interventions that we find anecdotally to be helpful and and help us, give us the data, do obs- collect observational study data and FDA will work with you and other practitioners to help collect this in a, in a scientific way that's useful for, for us and useful for um, advancing the field. And I think this is like a good middle ground area. Also, I just want to caution about, you know, melatonin because it's a hormonal, um, it has hormonal effects. And because of my, you know, I'm a, I work on the breast and gynecology uh, review team here at the FDA and my my interest is really the gynecologic malignancies. I know there was a, rec- a retrospective study with melatonin that found that serum melatonin levels in women with ovarian cancer um, were lowered with or con- lower than the control subjects, um, and they were saying that reduction in circulating melatonin might con- contribute to the pathogenesis of ovarian cancer. But then there were studies that showed the opposite. So I think because we don't know and. And because these things are, you know, these interventions like melatonin do have important physiological effects, I, I feel like it's risky at this at this juncture to be, you know, giving them while patients are undergoing treatment that we know can be effective. Yeah, um, I, I, I think uh, I, I may not completely agree with you, but I think the point is that we don't really know. And um, I take it upon myself to ask people and talk to people who are knowledgeable like yourself and others. And my own experience is that people are, are really have a lot of different opinions, you know, and, and 
from a breast uh, cancer standpoint, there are also some studies showing that uh, lower melatonin levels um, have correlated with higher stage at diagnosis and more aggressive disease. And all these things are very, you know, kind of hypothesis generating. Um, Absolutely. I actually am trying to do research in melatonin myself. And I think what you said is really important is that we just need to, we need to do research because the thing that makes me uncomfortable is that we just don't know what the truth is. And um, so there's, there's two sides to that. One is if we don't know what the truth is, then we're, we're just giving opinions to a certain extent. And it might be one way or it might be the other, but we'd love to be more scientific in our recommendations and not, not be opinionated, you know, then we can all agree and we can be more, um, more uh, emphatic about what we think helps and doesn't help. Um, so that's a problem. And then I, I think the other thing is when you don't have evidence, which is one of the main things in our whole field, is uh, what I find myself as an integrative practitioner and also as a medical oncologist is is helping. I don't know. I, I, I think that there are many practitioners who are very conservative, and I think that's totally respectable. Um but uh, for me personally, I mean, there there is this other side to this where uh, people do have symptoms, people are taking things themselves, and um, you know, I don't know if if I was a patient, I don't know if I'd want somebody to just say, you know, you can't do anything. We don't know what the effect is. I think that's one way to go. But then there's at least this is maybe not very scientific, but there's a part of me that says, okay, what are the things that I think are really harmful? and have been shown to be harmful or even that I think are harmful? And what are some things that are not? And why do I even parse that out is because especially as a medical oncologist, and you can kind of probably talk about this as well, I'm always giving things that are harmful. You know, I mean, I don't plan to, but, you know, with chemotherapy, immunotherapy, uh, we cause all sorts of side effects. So I'm used to giving people things that I think are helpful, but also could have potential harm. So I, in a way, I'm not so scared of that. I certainly wouldn't want to reduce uh, therapeutic effect, um, which I think is the concern. Um, right. And I just feel like there's a lot of unknown. I mean, I did want to ask you a question because I, I have my own thoughts on this. Um, and this is a study I'd love to do, but I haven't been able to do it yet, is just looking at uh, practitioners in particular, their perspective on this. I personally feel like we have this almost inherent bias and concern about any kind of drug, herb, or drug supplement interaction. Like, you know, it, it could possibly hurt the chemotherapeutic effect it's a possible interaction. You know, we go on natural medicine database and if there's a serious interaction like with uh, tamoxifen and SSRIs, obviously we would say don't do that, right? Um, right. So there's this kind of, you know, uh, sense that we, should, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't do those things because it's probably not that helpful and we wouldn't want to screw anything up. But there's a side to me where as, as an oncologist, I get so many flags for drug-drug interactions, you know, and, and obviously the serious ones need to be taken very seriously, but it gets to the point where, you know, so many of our patients are on steroids, narcotics, et cetera, and there's always a flag, antidepressants, what have you. And um, oh, of course, I'm bypassing them all the time. I mean, I'm not going to not give my patients antiemetics. Um, I'm not going to not treat their pain. 
you know, somebody has sleep issues and they have to be on Ativan or, you know, something short term, those have potential interactions, etc. So there's concerns all over the place, you know, and it's in that setting that I reflect back on these natural products, which, you know, many of them, you know, aren't perfect or, you know, there are question marks on some of these natural products as well. But at the same time, the whole reason people are gravitating towards them is because at least there's a belief that maybe they have less harmful side effects. They aren't as bad as the Ativan or Ambien or what have you. Um, so I, I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, it's, it's, it's really difficult to navigate all this uh, for patients and for providers. And I, I honestly feel like everybody has a different view on it. Um, absolutely. I think, you know, in theory, I, you know, not if before knowing what I, I knew, I would, I was more um, on the permissive side with allowing these things. I think the more data I've seen has, has made me more cynical and has turned me the other way. And I'll give you a couple examples of, of different areas that, that seem to be, have been red flags to me and have changed my, my thinking along the way. Um, there was a study that was published in JCO, um, in 2005, where 540 patients with hen and X squamous cell cancer were undergoing uh, treatment with radiotherapy, um, and they were randomized to vitamin E and beta carotene versus placebo. And you think, okay, great, like these patients are probably taking vitamins anyway. You know, p vitamins are are easily accessed over the counter. There's no regulation on that. There's regulation, but it's not it's not like you need a prescription for use. Um, so it seemed like a pretty simple and and seemingly benign or harmless trial, and they randomized uh, 540 patients, half of them got vitamin E and beta carotene, half got placebo, and the group that got the, the antioxidant intervention actually felt better. They reported decreased adverse events and um, decreased symptoms, which you think is great, but when they followed these patients out, they actually had increased local recurrence and decreased overall survival of any cause. And then this begs the question, you know, if, you know, one, I think we need to ask what stage of cancer do these patients have? Are they undergoing treatment for a curative intent where I would really, you know, be on steer on the more side of, of, of avoiding any other interventions? Or are these patients at a metastatic setting where they're really taking chemotherapy and, and other interventions for a more palliative use? And that would, seemingly being like a more permissive, you know, space to investigate these drugs. Um, and then also, you know, when you're intervening in these patients with supplements or, you know, any type of inter, um, integrative medicine um, intervention that you're, that you're thinking about, um, where, where are these supplements coming from? Because there's really nothing in place to ensure um, quality standards over time. On these supplements, there's a lot of issues with contamination, um, with not even having the proper uh, authenticated substance in the in the supplement. Um, there's fillers. There's other you know seemingly inert ingredients, um, and there's not a lot to ensure you know quality over time. I, you know, before these companies market these supplements, they have to submit what we call CGMPs or current good manufacturing processes, and they have to you know, disclose their, their CMC data. So how their manu chemistry, manufacturing, you know, how, how they're making these supplements. Um, but then over time, if they change something and they don't notify us, we really don't know 
what what we're getting in these in these labels. And there are some watchdog groups like um, U.S. Pharmacopeia and Consumer Labs that will go and test supplements on the shelf and and give their stamp of approval. So you can see a USP label on some of these products. I know that, uh, I think Nature Made products have USP on them, and I'm not advocating these. I'm just mentioning that I've seen that observationally the the USP stamp is on those particular products and um, the consumer labs evaluates you know other products and you can see a CL stamp on that but that really only ensures that at one point in time these companies evaluated these supplements and found that they were you know what was on the label matched what was in the supplement and that they were an appropriate of an appropriate standard according to their company for for sale and this is separate from the FDA but there's other than that there's really nothing to ensure you know the the purity of of these samples and there's a lot of variation from sample to sample of what you're actually getting so that's another concern because there's less strict regulation on supplements you know how do we even know what's what's in the pill is what is is supposed to be there and then the, the dose is consistent from from bottle to bottle I agree I agree I think this undermines a lot of the um, intent in terms of what mm -hmm. you're recommending. Um, you know, in, in 2015, the there was a case in, by the New York Attorney General, and um, I think he went into, you know, stores like Target and uh, Walmart, and they basically tested um, products and found that, you know, many of them um, didn't have what they, what they claimed to have. Um, so I, I think that, you know, there there has been a reaction to that. I mean, there, like you said, there's um, there's advertising of uh, what's been tested. Um, there's uh, actually a a, um, a company called Fullscript, which um, they've they've mm -hmm. been at our Society for Integrative Oncology conferences before, and they kind of batch test and and you know basically say that they're testing everything. And um, you know, I think that there's 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 space in that in that area of because people need to have some confidence in what they're getting you know in terms of the FDA what what's the process first of all for approving something and then what is the ongoing evaluation like you know is it is it such that if 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 it's FDA approved or you know then they don't look at it again unless somebody um, files a complaint or um, how does it work so this is really kind of out of my department. I work in in Cedar, so I I really evaluate the drugs. But my colleagues at Sifsan, um, I know when they approve dietary supplements um, and other you know the other regulatory groups here at FDA who who look at these, um, the approval they're allowed to market the supplements if they follow the sponsors follow what's called um, the CGMPs or the current good manufacturing um, process. And there are certain standards that they have to reach before these drugs are, these not drugs, but these supplements are marketed. And this is all available through the botanical um, guidance, which I can give you a link to to share with the listeners. Um, this is all public information that's available on the FDA website. Um, and you're allowed to market these supplements if they're, there's a, they have a GRAS status, which is an acronym GRAS that stands for generally recognized as safe or if they contain ingredients with a history of use or other evidence of safety that will be reasonably expected to be safe. So something like green tea that has a, a long historical um, 
use in, in the population that, that could be generally recognized as, as safe. Um, and this is in contrast to drugs, which um, you have to demonstrate that the benefits of the drug outweigh risks to the population and you have to follow standards in the OTC monograph. So they're two completely different review processes and it's it's long and nitty gritty and um, this information I can share with you, it's, it's all publicly available on the botanical um, guidance. So how, get, take us to the Deshay uh, Act. What what power does that give the FDA in in mark in regulating uh, natural products? So with Deshay, um, it really made a clear distinction now between botanical supplements and botanicals as drugs. And now, because they're the botanical supplements fall under a food category, um, again, there's less stringent uh, requirements. As, com as compared to drugs. Um, and they have to follow a completely different set of rules. But once they're once these drugs are marketed, um, the FDA does have the power to pull products from the market if there have been um, reports of adverse events. And the FTC can pull products from the market if there are claims about false labeling that don't match the indications. And there are certain examples of this that are publicly available. Um, I know in F the FTC and the FDA um, had to call into questioning the advertising by Palm Wonderful, for example, which is um, the pomegranate juice that's on the market today. Mm -hmm. And um, they, this company was actually um, advertising that they could um, prevent prostate cancer with their supplement. Um, and the FDA took action and what the FDA will do can send, they can send a letter um, to, to these sponsors saying that you're violating section 201 of the FDNC Act and that approval under the section when you're making a, a claim for preventing disease, it requires formal proof of safety and efficacy for the claims being made. And also, you know, an investigational new drug may only be used in a clinical trial if the IND has gone into effect. And this um, was another letter that was sent, um, for example, to a company called Alesgen that was um, selling bromelain supplements to cure cancer. And um, according to an article from Medscape, you can see that um, the FDA did not approve this drug, but the, the oncologist was still um, selling his pineapple remedy um, as a non-toxic alternative to standard cancer treatment. And he was selling his bottles of this um, product for $2,000. Um, he was selling it for $2,000 a model, I'm sorry, to cancer patients in various states and overseas. And he actually was indicted for with 27 charges. So we got um, wire fraud, mislabeling his product and introducing an unapproved drug into interstate commerce. So the FDA and FTC can work to take action against companies that are violating the Deshay Act. Um, but it's almost in a, it's it's usually in a post marketing setting at this point. That sounds serious. Uh, you know, one of the other questions I wanted to get to is what about for uh, products that are made in other countries? You know, for example, uh, Ayurvedic uh, natural products or traditional Chinese medicine products. Um, you know, there's there's definitely a concern for Ayurvedic products, for example, and um, contamination with heavy metals. Uh, I think with the traditional Chinese medicines, there's been, you know, cases where uh, some products have been laced with statins. D 
does the FDA uh, have regulation of, of these products if they're sold online, for example, or any of those kind of things, or that's just, uh, that's just out there in the marketplace? Um, I think there's a lot more drugs, uh, not drugs, but products out there that are making false and misleading claims about their supplement being used to, to treat, cure, mitigate, or prevent disease and, and websites that are misleading customers all the time. And I, at this point, it seems like, you know, the FDA almost has to play catch up to, to catch all of these, you know, false, false claims that are out there. Um, we do have some, uh, we actually, we have many, um, different offices in place and different policies to prevent health risks from violations of these, um, from these regulations and laws. We have, you know, at CEDAR, the Office of Compliance, we have the Office of Prescription Drug Promotion. Um, there's a compliance policy guide called CPG published by CIFSAN and the Office of Regulatory Affairs defining health fraud policy. Um, so there's a lot of different offices and regulations at FDA in place to to regulate the space, but it's it's impossible to regulate every single um, product on the market that's that's making a claim. And if, if there is violating these um, regulations, the first thing they'll what they'll happen is they'll get a letter from us from the FDA warning them that they're you know they're violating the FDNC Act Section two hundred one and and what they need to do. And if they if they don't comply, you know, further legal action will take place. But um, Again, you can imagine, you can just see how prolific the the internet has become with with sales of these products, and it's it's almost impossible to to catch every single one if if there's there is a violation. But yeah, but there are regulations in place to to do this, and and they you can this is all publicly available information as well. Well, let's transition a little bit. I mean, I think part of this is about research as well, and um, we know that there's less funding for, you know, uh, uh, research in natural products, for example, than pharmaceutical drugs. And that really hinders our ability to have, you know, strong arguments for or against using some of these natural products. Um, you know, when it comes to the FDA in particular, uh, I want to ask you a few questions. First of all, you mentioned an IND. For those who may know, who may not know, sorry, what is an IND and when does somebody need to apply for an IND and, and as part of a study? Sure. So an IND stands for an investigational new drug application. And anytime a manufacturer is marketing their product um, for an intent to, to cure, mitigate, treat, or prevent disease, they need to submit an IND to the FDA. And there's um, multiple guidances out there. Actually, there's I can I can provide all the guidance necessary to do this. But um, it's needed anytime a, a company wants to conduct a clinical trial for an unapproved drug in the U.S. So when I say drug, I'm also referring to an investigational biological drug product or botanicals. And something that's unapproved can mean that you want to investigate an approved drug or supplement for an unapproved indication. So even if the, the drug that you want to look at and test is approved and you want to use it for a different indication, that will also require that you submit an IND to the FDA. 
Um, and it's also required to conduct a clinical trial if a drug is a new chemical entity, if it's not approved, like I said, for the indication under investigation, or even if it's in a new dose form. So if you want to investigate something to be used intravenously, that's usually taken orally, um, that would require an IND. If you want to administer it at a new dose level or combine it with another drug and the combination is not approved, even if the two drugs are approved separately, um, that would still need an IND as well. Well, thanks. Um, and, and then the other thing that you talked about a little earlier that I wanted to, to ask you more about was partnering with the FDA. I mean, that sounds like, a, a, like you said, a great middle ground. Um, how, how can we do that? I mean, you know, how do we contact the FDA and um, how would you suggest that people who are interested in doing uh, research in botanicals, for example, whether it's observational studies or controlled clinical trials, um, how would they partner with with you guys? Uh, would it be through yourself as a liaison or is there an application process? Um, take us through how somebody would go about doing that. Absolutely. So the first thing to consider would be what space your intervention would be in. And there's different contacts for different areas in the FDA that you would want to reach out to. So Antosha, would you want to give an example maybe of a, of a potential clinical trial and I can kind of walk you through that? Yeah. Um, so let's say melatonin. We, we talked about that. So one study would be looking at melatonin supplementation and whether taking melatonin uh, during chemotherapy has an effect on sleep and quality of life. Absolutely. So for for sleep and quality, wait, would these patients, would they be in a cancer patient population? Yes. Okay. So then there's two different ways that you could reach out. You could reach out to the liaison for oncology because you're intervening in a, in a patient population with cancer. Um, and there's different contacts for each of these people. And I can provide you um, with the list of um, how to find these contacts. It's all on the FDA website. Um, or so you can reach out to the liaison for clinical trials in oncology or we have a division called um, DAP, which is um, relates to, involves um, studies with uh, analgesia, anesthesia, and and pain medicine. So I think I'm, sleep might fall into the purview of DAP, and I'd have to um, double check that. But there's a list of contacts for each for all the different divisions. So you could reach out to the point person for that and say. I'm Dr. Rao. I'm interested in doing an observational study in this space. This is what I'm proposing. Um, would it be possible to set up a meeting with the FDA? And what you could also do is set up a meeting request with a, it's called a WRO or written response only. And you could submit um, a little package to the FDA with background information and just a brief overview of your study and certain questions saying, would the FDA, you know, what else is needed to do for this observational study that I'm intending to do with melatonin in this patient population? Um, and the FDA can either respond to your questions for a WRO meeting, or you can, or we can take time out and, and meet with you face to face um, to go over it. And if you are, it depends also what your intent is. So it seems like you'd be doing an observational study. Well, this is just one example. I mean, that's actually a, a research study that I'm that I'm trying to do. So, I mean, basically, the the way the study works, it's a, it's a clinical trial, looking at uh, 
melatonin or meditation for uh, breast cancer patients um, with sleep disturbance to see if it improves their sleep or quality of life. And it's it's something that has not been started yet. But um, I find what you're saying really fascinating in the sense that, um, you know, I guess I'm curious, is it is it advice and, and help with the study that the FDA offers, or is it more of a formal um, arrangement and, and discussion that, that you're suggesting? Okay, so this is a clinical trial, so this would definitely need an IND. And what you would do is you could um, go to the OND, the Office of New Drugs contact sheet, which I can provide for you. It's on the FDA website. And you could contact the regulatory project manager, the RPM for oncology. I think this would fall under oncology, but also maybe palliative care as well. And they can decide um, who would which team would review it. We'll obviously be working together, but who will be the official team reviewing it? And then they could um, help provide guidance for you as to what would be required. But the IND requirements are all available on the FDA website as well. So you would look and prepare the IND package formally to us, submit it to the appropriate person listed on the OND contact sheet. You could also email the OPQ um, Office of Pharmaceutical Quality Inquiries mailbox and just say, I'm interested in submitting a clinical trial. Who do I speak to? And they can start helping you get the ball rolling on that. But this would definitely need um, an IND and it would probably come to either the oncology department or DAP, the Division of Anesthesia, Analgesia, Analgesia and Pain Medicine. Um, to be evaluated and we would we would move forward from there we would have um, certain requirements to submit to us so we would need data there's all these different divisions that look at INDs like um, so I would be a clinic I'm a clinical reviewer so I would be looking at the design of your clinical study um, or someone in, in my role a clinical officer and then we also have statisticians on board so stats would look to see um, if you have the uh, statistical power by the number of patients on your trial. Um, we would have a non-clinical who would look to see um, at the data from previous data to make sure that this in preclinical trials to make sure that this melatonin would be safe. We have our colleagues at the botanicals, botanical review team who would be looking at the CMC data. So chemistry, manufacturing and control to make sure that the melatonin you're getting is consistent. Um, for all the patients, the melatonin uh, supplement is consistent for all the patients, the same product, um, where it's being produced, if it has, um, and this is, this is a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but they look at um, different ways to assure that what is being advertised in melatonin is actually what's in the compound. Mm -hmm. So they could look at DNA barcoding, for example, and, and other analytic um, chemistry um, other an other uh, chemical analysis to make sure that the product is consistent and and pure for the for the patients and um, and also farm talks would be involved as well. Wow. So there's all these different disciplines that come together and and look at an IND and, and discuss its safety and efficacy. That's great. I I have gotten an IND uh, for this particular study, but it sounds like you know this is a real uh, great uh, resource for for researchers. Um, 
and I think uh, you know, it's, it, it, can anybody take advantage of this, or you know, is it is it just a, a process of reaching out, or? Well, it's actually a requirement for clinical trials using using drugs or, or interventions in in any patient population to submit an IND to the FDA, and then um, as part of that, the FDA works with the sponsors submitting the IND request to review all the different components that we talked about in it and to give feedback and to meet with the sponsors. Um, that's, that's, it's all part of the package. So you obviously know a lot about how the FDA works. And, uh, you know, I, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the podcast is because I, I think that you have a really bright career going for you and, and, um, a really interesting background uh, as a medical oncologist and uh, with this interest in integrative oncology. Uh, what got you interested in joining the FDA? And um, and were, were you more focused on the research aspect of it, or was it the integrative oncology interest and kind of looking at how the FDA approaches uh, botanicals that got you interested first? Um. So to answer your one of your questions, I, I had no intention um, of joining the FDA when I was um, going through the um, my training uh, previous to before coming here. I, I wasn't even familiar with really how the FDA worked. It's not something we really talk about too much in medical training. Um, before medical school, I got a master's of science degree in nutrition. I was always interested as uh, in food as medicine and, and how that would complement my medical studies. I always, you know, in the back of my mind wanted to go to medical school, but um, I took a year to do this uh, master's in science program for nutrition. And I learned an incredible amount about how um, food can really in, uh, interact and have important physiological functions in the body. And I, I took this knowledge with me to medical school and I realized it was absolutely complementary to my medical studies. And there wasn't a huge emphasis on nutrition, so I felt like I had an advantage to my to my medical colleagues. Now, and you, you went to medical school in Israel, right? I did, yes. So I, there still wasn't a, I mean, obviously here there's not a lot of emphasis, at least historically, on um, nutrition. Um, I think some of that is just starting to change, but it was pretty much the same there as well. I think throughout different lectures we'd have, I think in, in Israel and in the Middle East, I think there's a lot, um, there's a big initiative moving towards integrative medicine. And I was starting to feel that there. And I feel like the professors would incorporate um, some of that information into their slides, but there really wasn't so much data to, to really impart to us at that time. So it's not, it wasn't a huge part of our training at all. Um, I don't remember if we had, I mean, we might've had a, a small, you know, unit about it. I actually, I don't recall at this time, but it wasn't really the emphasis. We, we had different, we studied different units and different drugs and, and pharmacy. And um, it, I don't remember taking away too much of, of nutrition, you know, it's more about physiology, how the body works and learning anatomy and, and different other important units. So altogether, I felt like, you know, I had a great well-rounded education. And when I um, went to, when I did my fellowships and moving forward, I, I moved back to the States and I did my residency at Mount Sinai West in, in internal medicine. Um, and when I did my oncology fellowship at the NIH, my patients found out that I had a nutrition background and, and thought of me as their nutritionist, not as their new oncologist. And they kept saying, 
the other patients found out about me and said, oh, I want to talk to the nutritionist. And I said, okay, but I'm also an oncologist. <laughs> and they really wanted my input on, oh, what supplements should I take? You know, I was just diagnosed. What What's the secret? You know, what else can I be doing? And of course, at the NIH, I really had to say, you know, listen, we really, you're, you're embarking on an investigational trial right now. We can't, can't have you taking anything else except for this drug to make sure that you know that we're not affecting the efficacy and that there's no confounding but um they were sharing with me what they were doing before and I, I found it really interesting what my patients found helpful and and historically you know I spoke to patients who um a Native American background and and that I never used pharmaceutical medicine to treat any disease and I, I just found certain things like this fascinating and um you know, also a little bit problematic for, for other patients because I couldn't recommend things for patient to patient. And also there was no way to ensure that what one patient was taking was what the other would be taking because of, you know, some of the standard differences and standards for quality um, in supplements on the market. And also these patients would grow their own crops sometimes. Um, you know, anecdotally, I had a, a man who responded to an intervention for um, metastatic prostate cancer. Um, which is a really aggressive disease. And he, he's, um, you know, anecdotally, he really, actually, I don't want to say this. So <laughs> I'm going to stop here. Okay. Um, but um, so after NIH, I really, I, my patients really underscored the importance of integrative medicine in oncology. And I, by chance, did a rotation at the FDA just to learn more about regulation of drugs in the space. And I found out that there was, um, they really encouraged you at the FDA to find a niche of interest and to pursue it. So um, I asked them if I could be in integ the integrative oncology liaison and, and attend the meetings at the, from the botanical review team and report back to oncology and kind of be the oncology um, voice at their meetings. And they were really encouraging here and they still are um, for the medical reviewers to to follow what they're passionate about and to get involved in a space of interest. So um, I decided that this was a really great environment to work. Um, they're really encouraging, you know, bright ideas and, and fresh perspectives on how things are regulated. And, and um, basically my opinion really mattered. And I knew if I came here, I could make a difference um, and in a really important space. Um, of drug development and oncology and um, also an integrative oncology. And I really felt like there was a, a role, an undefined role that I could take over for to be the integrative oncology liaison here. So I found that it was just a perfect fit for my academic interest, my, my interest in research and, and cancer and, and integrative medicine all rolled into one. Well, I wish you all the success in your role. I personally think that the work that you're doing is really important serving as a liaison between the FDA and integrative oncology and helping us to understand how this process works. And on the side of research, focusing on the evidence-based and scientific use of natural products or, or perhaps when not to use them um, is really, really important and is, is fundamental to what we believe in the Society for Integrative Oncology. So I thank you for all the work that you're doing, and I thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Take care. Thank you, Santos. It was a pleasure talking to you.